Okay. Turn to your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 or turn over in your bulletin to page 10. Now those of you, those college students that were here in the late spring and went away and then I went away and you come back and you're like, you're picking up right where we left off. Yeah, you're right. We are picking up right where we left off. We're taking a look at Galatians. We're continuing with Galatians. As I mentioned last week, our plan is to get probably at the end of September to the end of Galatians 4. And then once we finish Galatians 4, because if you look in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, that's like this, that's like Mount Everest in Galatians. It's a difficult climb. As we climb that mountain one step at a time, by the end of our journey, we'll be ready to climb another mountain. One back in Exodus, one back in Deuteronomy. We're actually going to hike up Mount Sinai. And we're going to take a look at the law of God. And the goal by Christmas is to be done with the Ten Commandments. And then come right back and finish chapters 5 and 6 in Galatians. Okay? So that's the plan. After that, those of you that know me, there will always be, I mean, God always likes pushing other passages amidst our plants. Happens all the time. So that will happen. We might have some sideways journeys and adventures. And we know in the spring, even be praying now, what would God have us do? The habit, the continual habit that I've had that I've been here for 11 years is to go with an Old Testament book and a New Testament book and back to an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. And the goal of that is to expose you to all the Scripture and not just camp out in one particular area. And the goal also is what Shaner talked about when he walked down here earlier today, is for you to see that the Bible is all about Jesus. Now, not in the way of the old story about the squirrel and the boy and the squirrel in Sunday school and the teacher asks the boy what is it and he knows it's a squirrel he knows it's got a tail but he knows it's Sunday school so he says Jesus not in that kind of way but I want you all of us to grow in a in a genuine real way of seeing the text really is about Jesus not like you're leapfrogging to him but that the text is ultimately always about Jesus. Some of you are like, yeah, right. Well, stick around. Let's see what happens. All right. It hardly happens in homes with girls only, what I'm about to say. If it does, will you come up and talk to me? Because I'm fairly interested in how that happens in a house full of girls. Well, it happens for boys, and it's as common for boys. It's it's as common for boys as it is for boys to be hungry. Yeah, you moms that have boys are like, oh boy, yeah. Now, I did it to my brother, Pete. You remember Pete? He's doing real well up in Edmond. Real well. Uh, Cal does it to Knox. Knox will do it to Ty. And poor Ty will look around for someone to do it to. And Lord willing, there will be no one he can do it to. (laughs) What is it? What is it that happens? Well, first, you've got to have some sort of conflict take place. Now, the sky's the limit here. I mean, you can have conflict over who has rightful ownership of the fully functioning Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe, right? You can have conflict over whose turn it is on the Xbox. You can have conflict over who broke the last pair of earphones for the iPod. Who scratched Madden 2010? 
You could have it in any realm of competition, everything from who shoots the best with a BB gun to who can spit the farthest, right? Second, you have to have a big brother that doesn't get his way. That's key. Third, this is also key, you have to have a younger brother with a smart mouth. Yeah. Big brothers? Huh? Yes. And then finally, you have to have that decisive moment of heightened testosterone. What we'll call physical fellowship. Okay? Now, when that happens, the younger brother always loses. Genuinely, there's tears. And then he, he, all he's got left is that trump card that he can throw out there and he says, I'm going to tell... What? Mom. No! <laughs> What's mom going to do? Don't do that, honey. No, I'm going to tell dad. I'm going to tell dad. Dad will do something about it. Right? Come on, little brothers never go to their mom. They'll go to their dad. All right, now... It happens somewhere in this final exchange, and it, the source is the big brother. Here's what happens. The big brother says, you are such a baby. There it is. Now, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. When you and I get caught in the slavish pattern of living like a slave instead of living like a son, Galatians 4, 1 through 7 says, you are such a baby. See, what Paul is doing in this passage is he's like an older brother, except he doesn't have the sin. He doesn't have that superiority, that condescending superiority. He doesn't have these mega desires, this selfishness that's running all over him. He's without the heightened testosterone. But he comes alongside us when we start living like a slave and he says to you and me, you're such a baby. It's time to grow up. So welcome to Galatians 4, 1 through 7, where the drama of being a slave or being a son unfolds right before our eyes. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I mean, I love when Paul says that. He said that in chapter 3 too. When he was talking about the law, he said, this is what I mean. Oh, those are good places. Those are places we can say, this is what he means. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers till the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, what we're going to do before we pray here 
is we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, but we're going to leave out verse 6. That is such a powerful verse that we're going to unpack that next week, okay? That's just for some of you that need to hear that. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit. For a spirit that does cry out, Abba, Father. For a spirit that does teach us that we're sons. For a spirit that does convince us that we're loved. For a spirit that does get us to get grace. And so, Holy Spirit, would you unleash heaven even now? Would you fill me? And would you fill all of us? with the glorious knowledge of the Lord Jesus and what that means for living like a son. And we ask this in the Son of God's name. Amen. All right, during his days at Oxford, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, and at that time it was a Methodist movement almost about 300 years ago, he helped start at Oxford what's called the Holy Club. In the Holy Club, there were a bunch of students that were very concerned about holiness, very concerned about living lives that were pleasing to the Lord. And what they did is they would meet and go to church. They would study their Bibles. They fasted. They prayed. They went into prisons and work houses to do evangelism. They did education. They provided food and clothing for the poor people of the city. I mean, great stuff. Good stuff. Stuff we all should do. And we all should be growing in. But it's fascinating that when you read Wesley, he looks back on those days differently than, I'll be honest with you, than most people, teachers of the Bible, that I have heard through my years growing up. My years growing up had used these days in a certain way, but left off his own perspective of that way. They talked about the holiness days. When I was in campus ministry, we talked about the holiness club and and all that went on in there, and it pushed us forward to do more of that in our own universities, right? But this was left off, his own perspective. Wesley described those days as days of bondage. Ooh, to spiritual performance. He even goes on to say he wasn't a Christian at the time. So time out. Now, we'll wait on that one. Here's the timeout I want to look at. How did Wesley become a Christian? Just a little side note. You know what's very fascinating? He was given a book, and the book was a commentary on Galatians. And it was written by Martin Luther, who was one of the spear points of the Reformation. All right? And in there, he hears the stuff that we're going through in Galatians, and he ends up becoming a Christian. Now, His words about the Holy Club years are this. I want you to hear it from himself. He said, I had the faith of a slave, but not the faith of a son. That's the point of this passage. Do you have the faith of a slave or the faith of a son? Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Everything in this passage is moving you, moving me, 
moving the Galatians to verse 7. And it's moving you into verse 7. So it's not moving you so that you come and approach verse 7 and look at it from the outside, but it's actually taking you by the scruff of the neck and dragging you into verse 7. So you look at it from an insider. That you really experientially, and that's what verse 6 is about, but we're going to put that off till next week, get that you're a son. And live like a son. Even if you're a daughter. Okay? Now, we got to get our bearings in this passage because this passage has got a lot of stuff in it, doesn't it? I mean, we're reading it. It's kind of like, well, what did that mean? What did that mean? Even though he said, this is what I mean, you still don't get what he means, right? We've got to, let's place the point in the passage. And I want you to see something that we're going to have to be doing for these next couple of sermons because of chapter 4, 21 through 31. And then when we go to Exodus. Those of you that are just joining us, those of you that have been with us for a while, you know and are growing and understanding that there is an interpretive pair of glasses that you got to wear when you read the Bible. It's almost like when you come to the Bible, you got to put a pair of glasses on and there's two lenses that you look through to see the Bible and interpret it rightly. If you don't look through these lenses to read the Bible, you'll get lost in this passage. You'll certainly get lost in 21 through 31 of chapter 4. And then you won't even know where the green is when we go to Exodus. Okay? Here's the two lenses. The first lens is what we're going to call the story lens. The second lens is what we're going to call the personal or experiential lens. Got it? The story lens. When you look through the story lens, you're seeing, you're following the storyline of the Bible. That the Bible is one story from one author. And when you follow the storyline of the Bible, you're going to come across in the contours of the text specific slivers of splendor that will just shine on the page. And that's where Jesus shows up. When you're looking through the story lens, you're not seeing the Bible is these varied collection of short stories. You're not going to see the Bible as this edited edition of poetry. You're not going to see it as a composition of all these spiritual essays. You're not going to see it as a guidebook or a blueprint of eternal principles and truths on how to be spiritually better. When you look through this lens... You're going to see the glory and grace of another. All right? Now, when you go to the other lens, this personal, the experiential lens, this is the lens that sees the participants in the text, the original hearers in the text, and you and I listening in the text. It's looking at people, and it's, it's seeing how do these people, these participants, how do the original hearers that are hearing this, like the Galatians, how do you and I... As we listen to it, how do we connect to God? What's that connection like? How does it happen? Is there one? What's that relationship to God lens in the text? Now, when you look through here, what you're going to see are these fellow fallen worshipers walking through the text. Okay? And you're going to see real Christianity in the text and the two come together. Another way of saying it is this. You're going to see glory and grace hit human hearts. 
producing life change and relational change on the spot. Okay? You got the two lenses? Do you think you can do this? Here's what we're going to do. Look at verse 7. We're going to start with verse 7. Which lens are we looking through in verse 7? So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Is that the story lens? Is that what's being looked through first? Some of them are tricky because some of them lead with one lens, but the other lens is right behind it. So you can almost be okay to say it's both. But I'm going to push you a little bit more. Which one's being led with? The answer is personal lens, right? It's talking about you as being a slave or a son. We'll go down to verse 6. Which one is that now? And because you are sons of God, you sent the Spirit of God into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Is this the personal or experiential lens? Yeah, of course. That's the personal experiential lens. Got it? See, you're getting this. Now let's go to verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth the son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's that? Story lens. Get it? Good. Now tell me what verses 1 through 3 are doing. Now it gets a little trickier. Okay? So I'm going to tell you. You're going to have to trust me. Verses 1 through 2 are leading with the story lens. Verse 3 shifts to the personal lens. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. You ready? What's happening here is the salvation, the big salvation story is being talked about. And the big salvation story is being talked about because there's this epic transition that happens in the story. Something of an epic and cosmic proportions happening. There's a transition from this chapter or this view of the law to the gospel to Israel and to the church okay so one and two are highlighting the big story and this epic transition think big story okay here's what's going on in verses one and two Paul's borrowing a picture from Greek civil law to illustrate Israel's place in the big story all right Here's the picture. The bottom line is, in the big salvation story, Israel was under a guardian, a manager, a disciplinarian until God said no more. That's the point. Now let's see it. In the Greco-Roman world, it was customary for wealthy landowners to hire guardians, managers, disciplinarians to get their firstborn son ready to inherit all his wealth and all his estates to prepare him and get him ready because the, the, the wealthy landowners did not want spoiled brats inheriting their wealth and taking over their estate. I mean, think of Paris Hilton. I'm not trying to be mean. You and I would probably do the same thing. But that's what they were avoiding. They didn't want that. They didn't want boys that get all this wealth and all this estates and they live like Hugh Hefner. They did not want that. So they hired these guardians. They hired these these disciplinarians. And every picture in the ancient world of a disciplinarian or a guardian is he had this big rod and this big stick. Okay? Now, the future heirs, they were called children. Look at verse 1. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he was a child, the future heirs in the Greco-Roman world were called children or young masters. They were called master because one day they'd get the inheritance and the estate, but they were called young so that they would keep them in their place because they weren't men yet. All right? Now, the child or young master had about as much freedom as a common slave. Verse 1, again. Right? As long as the child is no different from a slave. Got the picture? All right. Now, the guardian or discipline would tell him when to wake up, what to eat, when to go to bed, when lights were out. Would tell him what to wear, would tell him what to do at school, would check his schoolwork, would give him chores on the estate, and he'd make sure he did it perfectly. Because if he didn't, that's why he was pictured with a big stick. Okay? The guardian regimented the whole life of this child, of this firstborn son. It was a law-driven existence. And then at an appointed time set by the father, they had the sacred family festival that was known as the liberalia. Where do you think that, what words come out of that in Latin? Liberty, freedom. And at this liberalia, the son was officially adopted as son by the father and acknowledged as such before everyone. And he was given the wealth. And then he was taken off his slave robe, which was called a toga practexta, and given a toga virilis. You impressed yet? I've worked on that. <laughs> the child became a man. No more guardians. No more law-driven life. The slave became a son. And an heir of his father's estate. Now, look at Galatians 3.24. Those of you that are in the bulletin, you're not going to see it. Those of you that have a Bible open, just jump up to 3.24. I'll read it out loud. Here it is. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. On the story lens, on the big salvation story lens, when you look through it and look at Israel and look at the law, you'll see that the law was Israel's garden, guardian. And this guardian was meant to take Israel and lead Israel to full sonship and get cosmic inheritance. The law was meant to lead Israel to Jesus, to Christ. Okay. So the law has never, ever, ever been meant post-fall to lead anyone to connect with God, to get blessings, to ward off disaster, to save you. You've got to get that. Now, what happens when you look at the law, not just through the story lens, but now let's shift and close the left eye, look through the other lens, and look at the personal, the experiential lens. When you look through the personal experiential lens, when you look at the law, what do you see? I'm so thankful that Paul does that for us in verse 3. So he gives us 
the big story lens and he gives us the personal experiential lens when we look at the law. The answer is found in verse 3. In the same way, we also, now he's transitioned to personal experiential from the big story, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's the catch. The law of the Ten Commandments here are being called the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? They are the building blocks of creation. They are the ABCs of creation. They are the DNA, the basic foundational DNA of creation. Every person everywhere has access to the elementary principles of the world. In other words, the law or elementary principles of the world were written down for the Israelites. Think of Exodus. Think of Moses. Think of Sinai. Think of what we'll do in a couple of weeks. But they also were not just written down. Paul says in Romans... On paper, on tablets, Paul says in Romans that God takes his very hand and writes them on every human heart. So here's the point. Every human being, regardless of culture, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of gender, knows the law. And here's the catch. And we know we break it. So it would be spiritually immature. We would be a child if we thought keeping the law or our spiritual performance could get God to love us, get God's blessings, and ward off disaster. In fact, Paul is saying in this passage, the most spiritually immature people in the church, outside of the church, are those who live by their spiritual record. And Paul is saying, it's time to grow up. So how do you do that? How do you grow up? We've got to see one other thing. If you look at verse 1, not only are we spiritual infants, but do you see what else he says we are? Do you see it? We're no different from a slave. Here's my point. If you seek performance, if I seek performance, if we seek performance to connect with God, then performance controls you. Performance enslaves you. Because if performance, if you've got to have a good performance to connect with God, if your performance is what makes you connect with God, get blessing, ward off disaster, obtain some sort of identity. If that's what it's about, you've got to have a good performance. If you don't have a good performance, you lose yourself. You lose your salvation in your eyes. When you blow it, you hate yourself. You beat yourself up. You criticize yourself. You critique yourself. You think about yourself. You try to figure out how you can fix it. Right? It always leads to a fear-driven relationship with God. It always leads to a slaving away for God. Now, some of you are thinking, exactly, I know that. That's why I want no part of Christianity. The Christians I see are slaves. They are unhappy people. And I want nothing to do with that. 
So I'll stay outside of Christianity. Thank you. Please hear me. God gets that. God gets that. But please hear me again. Have you ever considered, though, that if you seek romantic love to be your value and your significance, then romantic love controls you, enslaves you. You will slave away for romantic love. And whoever that person is, so-and-so, that you've got to have their love, they control you. And this is what leads many relationships into abusive relationships. This is what leads what we call codependency. How can that person stay in that relationship, we say? You're a family member. How come my sister or my brother stays in that relationship? Because romantic love controls them. That's life. That's their significance. That's their value. They've got to have that person love them. Right? This is also what happens is in certain marriages, in all of our marriages, we elevate this idea of love when love, romantic love controls us. And we try to make our spouse or our partner live up to that who can't fulfill it. And so then we get disillusioned. We get bitter. And it can lead possibly to adultery. Okay? One other thing. If you seek physical and emotional comfort for your happiness and your well-being, then physical and emotional comfort will control you. You'll slave away for it. You'll have mega desires for it that will actually push out more important relationships and responsibilities in your life. You'll have mega fears because of it. You'll hang on to your stuff. You'll hang on to your comfort. You'll hang on to things that we say, that's selfish. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. You'll be overwrought with worry and anxiety over these things. So everyone is controlled by something. Do you have the faith of a slave or do you have the faith of a son? You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir. How do you get the faith of a son? Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth... His son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that, here it is, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want you to look at this phrase. I ran by it and I just, every once in a while, I have this great, great Greek Hebrew program that I've had since seminary. And every once in a while, I'll go by words. And you know, when you hit words like propitiation, you go, oh, that's a no brainer. I got to figure out what that one means, right? Right? You hit words like justification. Well, I better figure what that means when you hit adoption or when we hit guardian. All that stuff came from doing a word study on guardian. So I hit it. But when you hear sent forth, you know, I get, I'm cruising by sent forth. That's just a normal verb. Everyone knows that verb. So just, just, oh, I don't know. I said, what does that verb mean? Hit sent forth. Do you know what sent forth means? It literally means to send on a mission. What do you know about missions? Missions require, missions are life-dominating endeavors. As John Ellis introduced me to the school just south of us, 
They say if someone leaves the middle of a football game, you what? Two percenter. There are no two percenters in mission. There's this great, great show on Discovery Channel called, was it Making the Cut, Knox? Surviving the Cut. They are going into special forces from SEALs to Green Beret to Rangers and have inside access into their training. I was watching the Green Berets the other day. And men were dropping out like flies. Start with 300, they get down to maybe 100. And one of them said, you will never survive this training if you aren't sold out to be a Green Beret. You'll quit. If it doesn't become your all-encompassing mission, you quit. God sent Jesus on a mission. And no two percenters are allowed. I've read several books on Alexander the Great. I think he is an absolute amazing warrior and leader of men. But also a very complex human being. He conquered the known world by the time he was like 27. I mean, what do you do after that? (laughs) Work for Bill Gates? That's a step down. President of the United States? That's a step down. Be a talk show host? I don't know. What do you do? A correspondent on Fox? What do you do? What's fascinating is that something happened because after he did that, he didn't live past his 33rd birthday. He never lived past his 32nd birthday. And his death is very mysterious. And most folks speculate he had nothing He had no greater mission to live for once he conquered the world. Well, there are stories upon stories upon stories of him that fascinate me. One of them fascinates me the most. And it's while he's on his way to India, as he's conquering all of the Asia, republics and providences and fiefdoms and kingdoms and rulers and all these different areas, he's marching through. Years go by. Ruler after ruler falls. He... uh, No army can stop him, but there's one particular king that thinks he can. And so as was customary for Alexander, he would first meet with the king or the ruler, and he would sue for peace and for their lives if they surrender. And if they don't, game on. Now, at this particular meeting, they had the king's bodyguard, Alexander's bodyguard and they would meet and Alexander would listen and at this particular point the uh, king was noting uh, some things like you know Greece is a long way from here how are your resupply routes doing how are your supplies how long have your men been fighting I mean even the most stout warrior fatigues fighting and longs for home to see a wife or a child or an ailing father or mother. Alexander waited patiently for this king to finish. He's heard it all before. When he was done, he looked at one of his men right in the eyes and that man looked back at him with the deepest of love and the deepest of loyalty and Alexander said, jump. 
And the dude stepped off the cliff. And that king surrendered on the spot. God sends Jesus on a mission. And with deep love and deep loyalty, he stepped off the cosmic cliff. Jesus' mission meant losing his exalted, limitless, heavenly glory. Do you know what that means? The Bible tells us there are two aeons, two ages, two realms of creation going on at the same time right now. There's the visible, the earthly, the temporal, the fading, that which will pass. And then there's the heavenly, the exalted, the supra, the ultra, the eternal that will live forever. And don't think of it just in terms of temporary ages. Don't think of it just in terms of, well, this one is temporary and this one's forever. It's a whole other existence. And Jesus left that realm, lost that realm, and stepped off the cliff. Not only that, his mission meant humbling himself beyond comprehension. Verse 4, he was born of a woman. He was born to be a human son. He was born to be a substitute son. God sends Jesus on a mission with deep love and deep loyalty. He steps off the cosmic cliff. Do you know that the lawgiver, the lawgiver, the one who's the source of the law, the one in whom the law speaks of and points to, the one who is the Lord of the law, the one who gave the law, becomes a servant of the law. Verse 4, born under the law. Now this means two things. It has two slivers of splendor in it, if you will. To be born under the law meant he needed to take the place of lawbreakers by fully, passionately, lovingly keeping the law perfectly. Jesus took the place of lawbreakers by being the incarnate righteousness for lawbreakers. Born under the law. But it also means he had to take the place of lawbreakers not just by keeping the law. He had to take the place of lawbreakers by keeping the demands of death for those who break the law. So he takes the place. He steps off the cliff. He takes the place of murderers. Of people who hate. People who can't forgive others. People that put words in people's mouths and motives in their hearts. People who put their deepest hope and their deepest trust in their success and their achievement. And not in the living God. That's the first command. People who commit adultery, who covet another man's daughter, now that I'm a father of two, or covet a man's wife. Jesus took the place of those husbands who do a horrible job loving their wives and wives who do a horrible job of respecting their husbands. 
Jesus not only became incarnate righteousness, he became the incarnate curse, born under the law. God sends Jesus on a mission, and Jesus, without hesitating, steps off the cliff. And you've got to ask yourself, what kind of God, or why would God, send his own son off a cliff? And then you've got to ask yourself, why would Jesus do it? Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Here's the mission. So that we might receive adoption as sons. There's the answer. The mission is making you a son. And Jesus was not a two percenter. How do you get the faith of a son? Here's how you get the faith of the son. When you see Jesus stepping off that cosmic cliff to make you a son, then you start shifting. Your heart starts moving to living like a son instead of living like a slave. When you begin to see that God is a God of grace whose salvation cannot be earned, his salvation cannot be performed for, it can only be received, then you'll stop slaving away for God. Then you'll sense more of a rest and more of a joy and more of a, a confidence in your relationship with God and in life. Real security. Those pictures throughout the Old Testament of a refuge and standing above your enemies. That kind of stuff becomes real to you. Also, you want to do good. You'll want to do good. You'll do good for good's sake and for others' sake. You won't do good for your sake. You won't do good to connect with God. You won't do good to get blessings and leverage them from God. You won't do good to keep disaster away from you. You'll do good because you'll want to do good because you're a son. That's why you'll do good. And you know what else you'll find? You'll begin to find that not only when you slave away for God, you'll realize you've been doing that, but you're also going to realize, I've been making others slave away from me. I give or withhold my acceptance and my love based on other people's performance. And you'll be free from that. That you can love people when they're right in the middle of a mess and forgive them. And you can go seek forgiveness because you are a mess. When you see what mission, what the mission to make you a son cost Jesus, then you'll truly feel loved and valued. When you see what it cost Jesus, you'll truly feel loved and valued. And you know what will happen? Romantic love will lose its control over you. Physical comfort and emotional comfort will lose its pull over you. Success will just be success to you. It won't define you. When you see the difference between living like a slave 
that the difference between living like a slave and living like a son, when you see that the difference boils down to performance, yours or Jesus's, when you see that, you'll start shifting to resting and trusting His alone. Do you have the faith of a slave or do you have the faith of a son? If you want the faith of a son, if you want to move from living like a slave to living like a son, you know how you do it? You mark the mission to make you a son. And you'll start moving. Amen.